Good morning, everyone. This is Dr. Gregory Peck from Rutgers University, Robert Wood Johnson Barnabas Health. And today, with the East Career Development Committee, we are conducting an East podcast entitled International Applicants to U.S. Fellowships for the Task Force. Today, we are fortunate to have Dr. Juan Carlos Poyana as our esteemed guest. Dr. Poyana is a fellow of the American College of Surgeons, member of the Global Health and the Future of the United States National Academies of Sciences, Engineering and Medicine, and he is a professor of surgery, critical care medicine, and clinical translational science, and a trauma acute care surgeon at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center in Pittsburgh. I've asked him to be our guest today because of his tireless dedication to international relationships, international societies, and international patient care. He has significantly advanced trauma, critical care, and acute care surgery in Colombia and Latin America, along with Dr. Carlos Ordonez. There has been a recent surge in global surgery and more recent attention to U.S. acute care surgery fellows seeking international education and training opportunities. But rather than discussing that today, and in order to properly balance a necessary reciprocity in the globalization of acute care surgery, the East Career Development Committee hopes you can shed some light, Dr. Poyana, on the globalization of fellowship training as it relates to international fellows coming to the United States for fellowship opportunities. Good morning, Dr. Poyana. Welcome. Well, thank you very much, uh, Gregory. I appreciate your kind introduction. It's a real pleasure and an honor for me to be here and to be able to open a conversation about these issues, which I think are very active and people continue to show a great deal of interest uh, all the way from medical school uh, into getting involved in global health and specifically in global surgery that has taken a lot of strength in the last few years. So it's a real pleasure to, for me to be here. Thank you again. You're welcome. Likewise. Um, I have some I have some not so straightforward questions to answer, so so bear with me in the audience. Bear with us as we do try to um, answer some of these questions that a lot of people, not only in the United States but also internationally, are trying to uh, ask and also answer. And for that reason, I really do thank you uh, and look forward to our listeners benefiting from this podcast. Um, before we really talk about formal U.S. fellowships, I guess, um, offering international fellows an opportunity to complete a U.S. fellowship can you just delineate some of the non-clinical and clinical education and training opportunities that you see uh, that may exist for international fellows coming to the U.S. and and being in U.S. fellowships? Sure. I will be happy to share with you our experience uh, here at the University of Pittsburgh and how we <clears throat> created an opportunity for a exchange program in which uh, residents and students can go to Colombia and visit and their hospitals there, while Colombian physicians can come to Pittsburgh <clears throat> to engage in similar activities but a little different. And because of the limitations on licensing and permission to touch patients and the regulations about only being an observer and so on, uh, we decided to do this exchange program by offering foreign physicians to come to Pittsburgh and get engaged in other activities rather than operating. Now, having said that, I think the future of a true reciprocity in global surgery will be to create some sort of mechanism or an avenue by which highly trained surgeons, young surgeons, or even fellows uh, from trauma programs outside the United States could actually come and scrub in the operating room. They will not necessarily be at the front of making decisions of care because they will always be supervised, but 
um, many nights I've been on call at the university with three or four patients coming all at the same time, and I have had uh, great Colombian surgeons sort of watching us struggling because we don't have enough people at night to cover these things or calling backup and so on. How wonderful it would be that I could say to these surgeons, go ahead and scrub, you will help me like any other assistant in the operating room. So we're not going to talk about that right now. You can ask a few questions about that later. I have a lot of thoughts about that. But that will be an amazing opportunity for surgeons to come to the USA and under very strict conditions be allowed to participate in some of this clinical care, if not anything else, just being an assistant in surgery. <clears throat> Excellent. As you as you bring that up, um, a thought comes to my mind. Um, uh, I was in Brazil uh, in December, um, and it was a crowd of roughly 300 participants, and they were younger participants. They were junior residents and, and medical students. And one of the medical students raised his hand. It was a Brazilian medical student and said, hey, would you mind talking to us about opportunities and the path in trying to get to the U.S. to train and then I responded, um, maybe a better question right now is, what education and training opportunities do you have here in your own country presently? And I, re I bring this up to, answer my, to ask my second question. In this era where close to 90% of the global surgical burden exists in the low- to middle-income country, to what end is really having international fellows leave their own country with that burden to come to the U.S. to educate and train in U.S. fellowships? Yes, that is a very important question. They don't need to come to the United States to learn how to operate. It's not about them being here for three years when you take a uh, first-year sort of fresh doctor out of medical school to teach them how to suture and to spend a year doing uh, bedside care so they can eventually get to do a lab quality. That's not what we want. If you get someone after a third year of training in surgery in any of those countries to come to the USA for only a month. And during that month, he's allowed to be part of the team 100%. But that means, go ahead, scrub and help me hold this camera or actually help me retract this patient, uh, retract while we do the surgery. Then that is something that will give them a complete scope of what it's like to be here. Now, why do I say that? Because the opportunity to just be here and see how things are done in a different way opens the horizons in a way that is just uh, beyond all explanations. <clears throat> there is nothing more important for anyone. A young mind wanted to learn and be uh, keen about uh, moving forward that just spend a month anywhere in a place different where they were trained. That by itself opens your eyes and gives you a great deal of opportunity just to see how people think in a different way. <clears throat> so, yes, the burden is down there. They are going to go back to work there. That's where they are committed, and most of these people want to go back. They have their families there, and they have their practices there, even though some of these places may not make as much money as uh, their counterparts in the United States of Europe. They are happy going back. What we want is that during that month, maybe two months, they can have an exposure to that. So we're not stealing them clinically. Different, that is, from the question of these Brazilian students who actually wants to write the USMLE, 
complete all the uh, requirements to actually engage in a residency program here. That is a different um, topic of conversation. Uh, we can talk about that in a different set of questions. Uh, but putting that aside, not just providing or offering a full surgical residency training program to foreign doctors, just the opportunity for them to be here at a level where they are just sort of uh, seeing how things are done differently, but they have already uh, accomplished a great deal of skills and com competencies in their own surgical training. So I, I hear you sort of answering that question in, in, in two ways. Uh, I, I hear that uh, we may not be ready for formal acute care surgery fellowships offered to international fellows at this point. Uh, maybe a first step would be these rotations that you're mentioning. Um, and, I, and I mentioned – I'm sorry, go ahead, Dr. Piana. I think the – yes, we are ready to do to offer these two-month rotation any time. In fact, I do them all the time at Pitt, except yeah. for the fact that they cannot scrub. Uh, offering a full fellowship here has been done in the past, and the two people who have the greatest experience – experiences doing that are Juan Asensio, who did it when he was working at UCLA, and he trained a lot of people, and in fact, these uh, foreign doctors came to California, and they got a restricted license with their USMLE exams passed, and they did a clinical fellowship. <clears throat> uh, in fact, some of them stayed here in the United States. Most of them went out uh, back to their country. The other program that has been successful in doing that has been uh, the Ryder Trauma Center in Miami, who have an international fellowship. They bring people with very strict uh, set of requirements, but when they come in, they enlist as a true uh, acute care surgery, mostly trauma fellow at Ryder's Trauma Center, and, and they can actually participate in the full program. In my so, mind, I think that uh, if we were to generalize these and go beyond these two, there may be other places that I don't know of. The ones yeah. that I know are uh, L.A. and Miami. Uh, in my mind, if we were to do this in a more generalized way and offer this as a true fellowship, I think a few uh, rules and a few um, guidelines. The guidelines for engagement and what the expectations are will need to be created. Uh, I think that Miami and L.A. have been successful, but I don't think there is any regulation uh, sort of nationwide about how these programs are offered. No, and, that, and that's, that's part of, you know, why this podcast is useful. Uh, I know that there are many programs uh, interested in that reciprocity, um, hosting and sending um, uh, from the U.S. perspective. So, the second part of what I hear you saying in your answer is, um, is, it, is it really a prioritization of what their experience gained in the U.S. could be? For example, if we talk about acute care surgery fellowships in general, you know, there's many components to the acute care surgery fellowship. There's emergent general surgery, as we know, uh, surgical critical care. Uh, there's trauma, and, and in fact, uh, acute care surgery and even surgical critical care is offering uh, even more pathways uh, to training. Is there a particular area that you would prioritize? And the other one to mention, I should say, is you know even trauma systems understanding, trauma systems approaches, uh, the different components of the trauma systems that these fellows could learn in the U.S. 
is there is there a specific prioritization that you would have for U.S. Uh, I'm sorry for international fellows coming to the U.S. in in the current scheme of the global surgical burden? That is a great idea. I don't think I will use <clears throat> the word prioritization. I will use the word customization, and and that refers to the fact that, for example, uh, there are no programs to teach a surgical critical care to surgeons in most countries in Latin America. Yes. Uh, in Colombia, there is. The surgeons go through intensive care training. The uh, <clears throat> most uh, important program that has done that successfully is the program in uh, Fundación Valle de Lili in Cali that is led by Marcela Granados and who has been the premier critical care program in Colombia who has trained surgeons for many years, including Alberto Garcia and Carlos Ordonez, they were all fully trained trauma surgeons when they went through a critical care fellowship as attendings in order to get their critical care certification as surgeons. So that is a unique experience within Latin America. If you go to Argentina, even if you go to Chile or any other countries, and Brazil is so big that I wouldn't know if there may be a, a complete is, yeah. range of opportunities in Brazil yeah. that I am not aware of, but Pretty much, surgeons don't <clears throat> learn intensive care the way it is taught here as a acute care surgery critical care fellowship in these countries because they just want to operate. So when I say customization, it will mean why don't we offer these two months, three months ICU rotation for surgeons who want to be, or even a full year of a critical care fellowship. And we customize that for that kind of training. Okay. You you do mentioned, and I think there is, uh, the consideration of the fellow and the fellow's experience specifically. Um, what benefit do you see for programs offering these opportunities to uh, international um, candidates? So the, your question is, what benefit is there for the programs in the U.S. to yes. offer these? Yes. For example, if I if I go to my um, departmental chair, if I go to my um, institutional leader, if I go to um, the school of medicine, the school of public health, and I, I I present to them, I have this opportunity based on some relationships we've developed that I want to offer an opportunity to this particular country, this particular fellow. You know, and in other words, how do we present to our uh, multidisciplinary partners the benefits to the program, to the institution, um, these types of opportunities? So let's go back to the word customization, and now we'll say the benefits will also be customized. And I tell you a few examples. It's not. It's actually often when critical care programs in the United States don't fill their vacancies because not everybody wants to go into just critical care. So just to provide a workforce for a year uh, to fill a position of a fellow that otherwise would have left empty in some critical care programs, that will benefit the particular program director or the particular department surgery who actually is going to have an additional set of hands uh, so, so what you're referring to, Dr. Priyana, is a point that Patricia Turner has made in the American College of Surgeons, that even in the U.S. there's a workforce shortage in the middle middle portion of the country. Obviously, that workforce shortage doesn't compare to some of the inter international settings, but you're bringing up workforce as a potential benefit. That would be one. The second one would be 
that again goes back to what is it that you're offering. <clears throat> you mentioned going to the School of Public Health <clears throat> or to a School of um, Clinical Translational Science where you will bring someone here to actually engage in two years of research. Now, that is customizing the need of the foreign doctors not to do critical care, not to do surgery, but to come here and learn what I think is the most needed thing that, that needs to be taught in, in, in all these countries, which is the methodology of research and the approach to clinical research. We don't need to make these surgeons uh, basic scientists. It will be nice if one of them can go back and do that, but that is not where the need is. There are very few programs where surgeons go into biology and they do mice work and they do cloning and they develop, uh, uh, you know, specific receptors for these glycoprotein that will make uh, these lab famous. That are very exceptional areas. That is not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is clinical research, applied clinical translational science, where Physicians from not just Latin America, but even uh, other areas, LMIC countries, will come here to engage in a very well-structured program where they will actually publish papers, learn how to use databases, learn how to design clinical trials, trials learn how to use advanced statistics, uh, and, and then go back to their countries and become real uh, pioneers in clinical research to do research with their own data under their own experience. That, to me, has been the greatest benefit of what we have done at the University of Pittsburgh. We train about 18 surgeons who completed either a certificate of clinical translational science, a master's in clinical translational science, or a Ph.D., and these patients are, and these people are now go back to Colombia and they are leaders in clinical research in yeah. their own field. So the benefit there for the U.S. programs is that you create a partner outside the United States who is going to help those programs to actually develop their global health enterprise. Why? Because once these people go back having trained for two years at Pitt, they have a personal connection with the university. Yeah. They have an interpersonal relationship with the researchers at the university, and when they want to do global health programs, all they need to do is pick up the phone and say, uh, uh, Alvaro, Fernando, remember when we were at Pittsburgh and we did these two programs, these two research projects? Let's do that. I'm going to send you two students to Peru. I'm going to send you two students to Argentina. Yeah, I'm waiting for these kids to come, and I will take good care of them because I know how you took good care of me when you were at the University of Pittsburgh. So what you're talking about is an interdependency uh, between the uh, collaborators in these types of international partnerships and international fellowships. You are touching on uh, research specifically. And if, if in just a maybe minute to minute and a half, uh, because there's two other questions are, uh, that, I, that I hope I can get to, what benefit to the acute care surgery division and acute care surgery chief is in these types of opportunities? So, again, for the United States, um, we need to make sure that those division chiefs and those uh, chairmans have their global health bug in them. <laughs> yep. Not all of them do. Not all of them appreciate the academic value of what it's like to be engaged in global health. That is part of the education that we need to do within the United States 
to make sure that the program directors that are now recruiting new residents understand a lot of these residents are now making the final decision on what program to match based on the opportunity to have international uh, international uh, opportunities, and pardon the redundancy here. Yes. I have brilliant University of Pittsburgh medical students who I wish I would have been able to keep in my program, but they decided to go to other universities who had in their mind a greater, wider opportunity to do global surgery. And uh, I have kept some, but I have lost some uh, just because of that reason. And when we say global surgery, you are referring to global acute care surgery, just so our listeners can and really understand that. Uh, it's well, a broad... not necessarily. This is okay. where I think we need to be smart about these. I think that acute care surgery is what we do, is what we like to spend our time, is what makes our heart sort of pump faster. But global surgery is so wide and it, it has so many areas that we probably need to broaden our horizons about these. Uh, as long as we are creating that sort of magic international personal relationship that is going to benefit people in both countries, uh, it doesn't necessarily need to be a cucur surgery. We can spend a great deal of time, and I think a cucur surgery is probably the one that has the greatest potential of development, but there may be other things, uh, you know, obstetrics care, cancer care, uh, pediatric surgery. So th- there are a, a bunch of other things that are within the realm of global surgery yes. that, that <clears throat> probably will require a different podcast with yes. people who are ex- expert in that area. In acute yes. care surgery, yes. In acute care surgery, even the residents who still don't know if they want to be cardiac surgeons or going into plastics or actually staying in minimal invasive, those kids who come looking for a residency training program, they come looking for international experience, even though they still don't know if they want to be acute care surgeons. Yes. But so, how, this is how you kind of attract them, because you already have the program set up, and they can go to exciting places and learn a great deal of uh, surgery under people who who do these uh, under very underserved circumstances, and they're very good surgeons. So I think they, they see the value of that. Absolutely. And some of the institutions across the country that you mentioned, uh, Virginia Commonwealth University is another one that comes to mind, shock trauma, another one, you know, here at Rutgers. There's questions coming up, you know, how, how do we actually do this, right? So in, in the in the opportunities and relationships that uh, that the the institutions I just mentioned have developed over uh, the last several years and even uh, for years before that, before we even knew anything about international interaction, global surgery, even the term uh, global acute care surgery. Um, the question repetitively that comes up is um, for some of these opportunities uh, at the institutions and in, in, even in the divisions of acute care surgery. Um, question that comes up is what is a J-1 visa and what are the terms uh, of it? Well, <laughs> that's a loaded question. Um, <laughs> I did mention J-1 one of them. The visa, the visa that I had when I came to the United States many years ago. Uh, a J-1 visa, uh, it's a mechanism by which the United States government opens the opportunity for people to come here and do clinical training, not just in surgery. Uh, to work as a student and, and, and generate a revenue as a resident 
while they get engaged in clinical training. My understanding, last time I looked at that, is it has a seven-year uh, maximum duration, and you are required to go back to your country uh, uh, and not... Uh, are and not able to apply to get a job in the United States for two years while you get back to your country. Uh, J-1 visas have been a good mechanism to actually maintain that workforce that you and I were talking about before. There are programs right now in the United States uh, that uh, are not going to fill their positions because of uh, President Trump's new banned regulations on, on immigration. That are not necessarily in surgery. There are programs in internal medicine, family yes. practice, and pediatrics. Who's Very applicable to the mid mid portion of the country. Yeah, or, yeah. or even uh, uh, inner cities. Uh, inner, I'm sorry, programs in inner cities uh, areas in New York and, and Connecticut, where the only people who fill those programs are foreign medical graduates. Yeah. So, so. So the J-1 visa, it's, it's an interesting mechanism, and right now is where it exists. Uh, I don't think we will ever be able to modify that to create other different ways of spending time here, still with a commitment of going back to the country, um, in a different setting, no? maybe just helping in surgery or being exposed to short rotation where you can be clinical here. Um, simple yes or no answer, if you would. Um, is it fair to offer opportunities to international fellows and request that they go back to their countries to build capacity in their countries after they train in the U.S.? I think it's fair, yes. Okay. What are the limitations of these international fellows if they come and uh, we offer in the United States fellowships opportunities to them? Does it, does it matter also what country they're coming from? What are their limitations and does it matter which countries they're coming from? Limitations in what sense? Let me, I don't understand that question. Limitations. <laughs> uh, so if we have an international fellow um, that is on our service for six months and whatever that service is defined as, you know, uh, pertaining to some, some, uh, some of the ways that you've answered these questions, are there limitations uh, in having those fellows on our service? Uh, are there limitations in having that fellow in our institution? Uh, and, and those limitations... Uh, do those limitations differ based on what country they're coming from in order to have these U.S. opportunities? Yeah. I think the, the answer is a yes, but it probably depends. depends on what kind of uh, previous training they had. Uh, I, I, I remember my own personal experience when I was accepted as a clinical resident at the University of uh, McGill in Montreal. I had been in the lab for two years. And uh, the first couple of months, I was put in the cardiovascular rotation. And my God, was I limited? Yes, I was. I, I had not seen patients for two years, uh, and I didn't know anything about the system, uh, how the program was run, uh, what the responsibilities of a interwear. And, and I suffered for the first two months. I was like uh, learning by <laughs> trial by error. So. Yes. If, yes. if you are going to create these programs and you're going to bring people, you want to make sure that they are level and maybe they need to be prepared with a special orientation session um, customized for their needs in a very similar way that you do an orientation session for the 
teach for the interns that come that you know they 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 do an ATLAs, they learn how to use a computer, they spend a couple of weeks before July first getting to know the hospital. Well, maybe if you're going to do something like this, you've got to bring them a month or two earlier and and allow them to have a feel for what the system is. And not, not not only that, but make sure that they are proficient in English. So the limitations can be a many, and they will vary from country from country where they come from. Um, yes, as you mentioned, that, you know the international applicants from Cali or or um, Sao Paulo, Brazil, or in Panama, where there's been a you know relationship in acute care surgery for many years. Other countries, I'm not excluding other countries, uh, especially as you mentioned, in the more concentrated urban areas, they have had the acute care surgery background. That's very different than having an international applicant uh, in a particular country where they may not even know what acute care surgery is in, in, in other parts of Africa, for example. So those limitations uh, are country-based, is what you're saying? No, no, I think they are based these limitations result from the lack of that um, personal sort of long-term relationship between a country or a specific place in a, in a country and a university here. I think that it, if you are lucky to have had a personal connection, sometimes all it takes is a member of your faculty who is from Ghana, who knows Ghana, can go to Ghana and bring a great deal of expertise and create an an open flow from Ghana to your hospital. So that personal connection of someone who is knowledgeable, and I think that's what sort of was advantageous to me when I was developing these grants through Fogarty. I did them in Colombia. I am from Colombia. I knew what the Colombian reality was. And I had personal connections from people who were my classmates from medical school. So I don't think these things happen in a vacuum. I think that any program director who wants to promote these opportunities need to look at what they have in their department. Yes. And, so you, you... and start by doing that. Now, if there is, it happens to be a department where there is no one there who has any connection internationally, well, maybe you ought to start thinking, <laughs> diversifying. <laughs> so, you, so you, interesting, you brought up Fogarty, and this is, this is going to be the last um, question here. You brought up Fogarty, and with our newly elected administration, um, I know that Fogarty is one of the areas um, uh, targeted for budget cuts. Um, so with our current cutting and international funding underway, uh, or perhaps even potentially underway, um, what type of divisional or departmental or institutional and or even societal support will be necessary to fill the gap if high-income countries like the U.S., are going to provide the opportunities um, to to the international fellows. And in other words, I want to start a this opportunity. Yeah. I have a I have a relationship, um, and um, the cost always comes comes you know it's to the forefront. Uh, yeah. I have an international fellow that is biting you know biting at the chip to have this opportunity. That fellow doesn't have the resources or means to come and have this opportunity. Who 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 is responsible? Is it the high income country or the low to middle income country to generate that opportunity? Well, reality has sort of uh, hit us really hard uh, with these uh, new uh, policies that are going to severely limit the engagement of the federal government in providing funding for these programs. And by that I mean 
the amount of money the NIH is going to get to do international health is going to be drastically reduced, and the amount of money that programs like Fogarty uh, used to have are going to be severely compromised. Uh, without talking about politics and, and, and understanding simply that closing the Fogarty is going to save a lot less lives than giving money to the DOD. In other words, the policy of creating health in other countries, in other regions of the world, is a more peaceful, uh, it's a more, it's a stronger force to create peace than anything else. And so what you're mentioning is globalization of education and training. <laughs> I think that if if these funding mechanisms are not going to be there, you need to be really uh, innovative on financing. And by that, uh, you need to know the country you're working on. In other yes. words, if you go to Colombia right now and you find that after the peace agreements, there is a great deal of money and there are something called regalias, which is some of the money that was sort of saved from the time when oil was high priced, that was sort of channel to create new programs. Politically, you can actually tap into these money. So not necessarily uh, – I think that if you're really smart and you know where these specific funds are and you have political connections, you can actually get a lot of these upper-middle-income countries that are no longer low-middle-income countries have now some resources and the art is to convince the politicians who have uh, decision power on these resources to see the value of what these programs are offering. So you can go to other countries. You can go to Mozambique and realize that in Mozambique there is a special fund to actually advance the surgical plan nationally in that country. Well, maybe what you ought to do is work with those people to get some of that financing to promote some of these things. That's, a, that, that's a, a very comprehensive answer to, I think, the many different opportunities that are available, and I um, I bring that up only to say that most of what limits these opportunities is cost, and I think we all sort of know that, um, but yes, innovation is necessary. Um, it's been a pleasure having you, Dr. Poyana, um, and I, I do appreciate you answering some of these questions that, that we don't have great answers for now. Um, I appreciate your time. Is there any last comments you would like to make? No, I think the last one is to realize that we, global surgery and global health and surgery, are just a baby compared to some of the other great programs in global health. Uh, the money that goes into AIDS, malaria, tuberculosis, are far bigger of what we can. And um, we as surgeons need to continue to be patient. Eventually, we'll get to to obtain funding and recognition for the for the value of what we do in global health and global surgery far beyond of what has been recognized to the infectious disease world. But it's going to take some time, and it's going to take a lot of work, that's for sure. Thank you so much. On behalf of the East Career Development Committee, I would like to thank Dr. Carlos Juan Carlos Puyana for taking time to speak with us today. Uh, this is Dr. Gregory Peck, and I hope you enjoyed the program. When you find a moment of time, please visit the EAST website at www.east.org for more EAST career podcasts and other valuable information on this podcast and many others. Thank you so much, Dr. Boyana. Thank you very much, uh, Gregory. Appreciate the invitation.